Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. It's time for a friggin' overall. Good to be back behind the microphone. It's been a couple of weeks. I'm not sure if I know how to work all these toys in here and the bells and whistles and switches and slides and clicks and clacks and all that stuff, but I'm going to give it a go. I hope you have been well the last two weeks since we were uh, together. Uh, I did a show uh, just before we left for a tour of uh, Germany via the Viking River Cruise Line, which was, I'll get to as much of this stuff as I can today. This is actually a two-part podcast um, this one you'll be hearing today, uh, I'm dropping it on the 25th of March and I have a guest coming up that I was able to spend a little bit of time with on her tour when I was in Germany, but I couldn't get that done in time for this show. So we're going to tape that this coming week and I'm either going to drop it on Wednesday in the middle of the week or I'll wait till next Saturday. But this is a two part show because the experience there was so enormous for me. I could not fit it all in 30 minutes or even 45 minutes or even an hour. And I don't want to bore the crap out of you. So I'm going to break this thing in two. Um, amazing to me, first and foremost, well, let me, let me get to, before I get any kind of pontification, bloviation and verbal defecation going here, um, I'm working my way out of jet lag. So I'm starting to remember who I am, which is a good thing. There is a six hour time difference between Chicago and, um, Amsterdam and that whole Rhine river Valley area there. So, um, leaving Chicago. We, we ran into that nor'easter a couple weeks ago and got through that and had a great trip over uh, across the Atlantic Ocean to uh, Amsterdam, got in. And the Viking people, you've probably seen their commercials on television, uh, cruising the world in comfort, as it were. Uh, they were first and foremost sensational. From the f- Set everything up from the flights. Uh, we sent our luggage ahead. It was waiting for us when we got there to the boat. Uh, the, it was interesting ride from the airport to the actual boat. I think the guy was his first day as a bus driver and I could clearly see the boat on the Rhine river. He couldn't find it, but I didn't want to say anything. So anyway, we eventually got there and from the moment we stepped on board to the time we stepped off, uh, at the end of the trip, it was just nothing but spectacular. Um, I, I can't say enough about these folks. I can't imagine being in a service industry like that, where you're going basically 24 seven. Um, they start in March. This was their first cruise of the year on the Rhine River, which the water levels are up and that was a good thing. Uh, but they go all the way till November. They get a, week, a day off every two weeks. These people are on call all the time. I don't know, you know, you got to be built for that stuff. There's no question. So this is a worldwide company. I mean, the guy that started it back in 1997 had an idea to do it. And uh, he, uh, you know, started in Russia, which I don't know that anybody's taking any tours in Russia these days. But a fantastic uh, uh, idea that he had to bring the world to people and bring the people to the world. The gentleman's name is uh, Torsten Hagen. Uh, he is a Norwegian billionaire, and I actually had a chance to spend a few minutes with this guy. I'll get to that in a little later. Uh, not often you get a chance to spend a billionaire, and the fact that the billionaire, who owns all the company, you know, the company that ships the whole drill, uh, when every ship comes into port, he comes out and welcomes everybody and walks through the ship and stuff. I mean, that's... That's a good billionaire move on, on his part. If you want people to come back to your product, you do those type of things. Anyway, uh, it was just sensational. 
uh, it takes a little acclimation. You know, you're, you're stepping off terra firma and you're basically going to live on a giant barge, a very high luxury barge, uh, for about seven or eight days. And you have to get used to the river. Now, these boats are very wide and flat. They're shallow bottom boats because it's maybe at the deepest 25, 30 feet in the Rhine, somewhere in there, I guess. Um, and, and it's a highway. You know, the Rhine River cuts right through the Netherlands, Germany, France, ends up down in uh, Switzerland, and it has tributaries, of course. But I was not prepared for the amount of traffic that goes back and forth on the Rhine River because it's basically like a highway. These enormous ships back and forth and back and forth. So, you know, the, the, the initial uh, impression was this has got to be one of the coolest things we've ever done, Teresa and I going on this trip. And we were so looked after and taken care of. It, it, it's hard to find any flaws in the thing. And it turns out this was their first cruise of the year, as I mentioned. They've been practicing for about 12 days to get ready for the, for the first group of people. Uh, they zip from Amsterdam down to Basel, Switzerland, and then they turn around and go back up north, and they'd run that route for months. And they do the trips, and they do the tours, and, and all, the, all the stuff that goes along with it. It's enormous in my mind because I don't know the inner workings. I'm like, when do they offload this? And when do they unload this? And where do they fuel? And uh, Amazing. Uh, unbelievable uh, production of how they pulled all that off. So... Um, the food, let's just start with the chow, top notch, like the finest you'd get into any major city in the country and in, in, in one of the best restaurants uh, that we have here. Uh, I had more fish cause I'm a fish guy. I'm kind of like the gill man. Anyway, <laughs> I had more fish that was so perfectly done, which is not often easy to do than I can ever remember. Every meal was fantastic. And that's the hard part. You know, I'll never eat that much at home, but when you're there and you've paid for it, it's like, you know. You get up in the morning, have breakfast, and then you have another breakfast. I had like two breakfasts because I'd be up really, really early like I am most days here in the States. And there's like three other people walking around the ship, the captain and two other people and myself. Uh, so I'd get up and have coffee and sit and just watch us go down the river. There was a couple of times there was the perfect crescent moon and we were just gliding along. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just, <laughs> you could just feel the stress. At least I could melt out the end of my toes and roll right into the river. It was really something. Uh, so that's that. And then you get up and everybody else is waking up. And then you go have breakfast where they make you anything you want, that kind of thing. Lunch, when you come back from one of your tours, an incredible dinner. Every night was something magical. Uh, so that was top notch. And then, of course, we spent a little bit of time at the watering hole. We met uh, Jay and uh, he was, you know, you got to know the bartender, right? You got to get up in, into that guy's grill a little bit. So in, for the duration of the trip, he was fantastic. And everybody across the board, from the people that served to the people that steered it, unbelievable. So there's my shameless plug for Viking. If you get the chance, do it. They got tours all over the place. I'm not being compensated in any way, shape, or form. This is just my observation. So I'm sure you can just figure out at viking.com and uh, pick a cruise, any cruise, and, and take off and do that. It's, uh, it's well worth it. The other thing that was the big aha for me, and I'm going to get to one of the favorite excursions I had in a second. But the big aha that I had for me was I was um, a little bit apprehensive uh, about being in Germany. You know, it's what, 78 years since the war ended, something like that, 79 years. And in this country, you have to go south of the Mason-Dixon line really to get any sense of the Civil War in, in certain places. In Germany, it's everywhere, meaning the battles were fought all the way through. And the reminders of that war are everywhere. 
the, the monuments and the tributes and the flags and the, and the plaques, uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming. It was for me as an American to get there where so much that has happened, I read about in history books, and now you're there, there's this particular bridge over the Rhine River. It was one of the last two bridges in 1945 that were left standing. Uh, the Germans had tried to cut everything off coming from the east and, of course, uh, or from the west, I should say, and then, uh, you know, the Allies needed to get across the Rhine River going east. And uh, there was this huge battle ensues over one of these bridges, and, you know, we're going to glide right past it. And it was about 450 yards up across the Rhine at that point, maybe a little bit more. It's quite a stretch. And as we go under this bridge, I, I couldn't help but think on each side, you know, within 100 yards of each side, north and south of this thing, how many soldiers died on each side in that conflict? How many German soldiers on American soldiers, the Allied soldiers, the French, everybody that was fighting? Um, it, it was overwhelming, got to tell you. Uh, in the space of basically a lifetime, we went from, you know, war in Europe to cruising down the Rhine River on a tour. And it's hard to wrap, at least for me, wrap my mind on the opposites of that, meaning why do we need to get to those points? I, I, you know, there's, those are varied and, and uh, deep questions and probably has no answers. You know, do we need to have this? Uh, uprising and millions of people die. And it, it, it seems like such a waste because here we are cruising down the Rhine River. I'm having smoked salmon for breakfast. Whereas 78, 79, 80 years ago, people were just being slaughtered in that spot. So it was very profound for me in a, in a, a way that I'm still trying to process, quite frankly. And the same goes for Japan, right? So you can go to Japan on vacation. You know, they gave up in 1945, the end of the war there was into the Pacific. And so now we go to Germany and Japan, two of our ancient enemies, for lack of a better term, and now we just go there and on vacation. It's, it's, it can't quite get it. It's a thing. At least it's a thing for me. And that's what that whole perspective shift is about. It's kind of like, um, did we have to go through that? Apparently we did to get to this point. And, and to that point... Uh, I ran into a guy a couple times on the ship named Oliver, and Oliver is the program director for this particular uh, boat that we were on called the Lofen, L-O-F-N. And he's German, and he, he comes out and does a presentation every night about what we're doing the next day and all these kind of things. And the first night out, he comes and says, I'm German, and I'm sorry. And everybody kind of laughed. He said, no, I'm sorry. He says, you will hear that a lot from us, uh, and we don't do it to be martyrs. We do it to be remembering how we got to this point. And he talked a little bit about the same thing that, you know, what are the odds that, you know, 85 years ago, 80 years ago, whatever that time span is exactly that one day, uh, people from all over the world get on a barge type boat and float down the Rhine river after all that happened there. And his apology was to everybody in the room, uh, on behalf of the people in his life, that came before him that were part of all that went down. And that apology was like so heartfelt from this guy. Uh, he's, you know, I, I caught him later one-on-one -on -one and I said, you know, what, where does this come from? This whole not forgetting thing. He says, I will tell you that before you can graduate high school in Germany, you have to go to a concentration camp and spend the day there. And that changes 
it, it may not change everything, but it solidifies what the, the, the lesson is, what, that this can't happen again. And all the cost, the human cost, and I guess the cost of, of the goods itself and the weaponry that went into all that. Uh, and to get past all that and not go back to that ever again is obviously the goal. And he said he even went to the point where he would talk to his grandmother about it when he was little. And the grandmother just pushed it off. And we must move past this. And, it, you know, it's, it wasn't as bad as everybody says. And, and she always denied being part of that movement. He said, but when she passed away, we found her diary. And she was definitely part of the movement. He said, that generation that came before him, his grandparents' generation, they were guilty by um, association in his mind and in the minds of a lot of Germans. They were guilty by association. And it's kind of like being an accomplice to things just because you didn't. It's like the sin of omission and the sin of commission, right? You do something and it's a sin, but sometimes not doing something is a sin as well and even worse. And to not speak up or not help or do whatever uh, is often worse than the, the sin itself, whatever you, the act that you committed. So he said she was definitely a Nazi. There's no way around it. She wasn't goose-stepping with a hat on and carrying a rifle, but she had fallen into this mindset that someone out there is different than me, and because of that, I'm having the problems that I have. So when, when Hitler was blaming the Jews and the, and the uh, gypsies and everybody else that wasn't exactly like the, the superior race, right after World War I, when, when things had gone to shit in Germany, it was ripe for the picking. These people got in line. Yeah, that must be the reason... You know, my life isn't good. And my God, let's follow this guy to be the superior race in the world. Let's own the world on top of it. So that's one part of it. And of course, you can open any history book or God, there's movies all over the place and documentaries about how it, how it all unfolded. And, he, and, and Oliver was adamant. He says, not again, never again. He said, so, you know, I, I don't try to overdo the apologies, but I could never say enough of them. He said, so many American GIs came to my country and did not return home. And he said, we do not take that lightly here. And he said, he also said, you know, there are those smattering of voices in uh, Germany that, you know, don't believe the Holocaust ever happened. And, uh, you know, their, uh, you know, resistance to those type of things. Uh, he pointed out that not long ago, there was a, um, uh, this uprising for lack of a better term of, a, some underground type of network, the Reichsbürger movement, small groups and individuals around the country, um, peddling bizarre views and, you know, rejects the legitimacy of the state. Not unlike here. Thank you very much. That was, you know, it's another thing. You go there and they're in the minority. There's very, you know, people like that are, are in the minority there and they're not really vocal. And they're underground. Here, very different. They're vocal. They got their own YouTube channels. They're all whack jobs, but nobody cares. And they listen to this stuff. And so that's kind of a, a major difference. But he went on to talk about that. There are these these underground fractions that have survived, they have to stay underground because they're being, you know, ratted out and pulled out of their holes. They just won't tolerate it. You know, you can't have any kind of symbolism, Nazi symbolism. Uh, I think you can have it in artwork, but not like can't walk around with a flag. Some of the Nazi and skinhead rallies that happened here in the States, they wouldn't come out of jail. It's just done. So because of the impact that that all had there, they see it differently, I think, than we do here. It was so prevalent that just about everywhere you went in Germany, there was some sort of reference to World War II and the liberation and the rebuilding and the reconstruction of Germany, and that two generations removed from that war, 
they are very, very aware of the fact that it could have gone differently. He even said, thanks for keeping Russia out of here because we know how that would have went. So, I mean, he was telling me about a friend of his that he did, you know, he was at a bar one time and there's a bar, a couple bar stories here if I can get him in. But he was at a bar one time and this guy was, you know, they're having dasbia and at the next table over, there's this small group huddle there talking about, you know, that they think that the, uh, the, the original German empire of 1871 still exists and they wanted to run it right back through the Third Reich and, you know, they're everywhere is my point. But the difference is it is not tolerated there in the way that we tolerate it here because of free speech. You could walk right down the Michigan Avenue, Chicago, waving a Nazi flag. You can do it. Over there, nada, nine, not going to happen. So I guess that's the price we pay, right? I, I could not help but think about, you know, all the men and women in, in the armed forces, not just in America, but in the allies in general, uh, that, that lost their lives to stamp out the very thing that we allow here because of the First Amendment and how that gets skewed. I always say we become what we allow, and the more we allow this stuff, uh, the more we'll have to put the fire out again. The other um, thing was that these, these tours were... Um, it leaves me a little bit speechless because, you know, it's so very different than our country. We were in Strasbourg, for example, and uh, there's a cathedral there in Strasbourg that is four times as old as the United States. I mean, when you're standing in front of a structure that's like 2,000 years old, uh, we don't, I, it's, 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 I'm speechless. I'm standing there looking at this thing going, the architecture's unbelievable. The, the whole footprint of the deal is amazing. If you had a chance to go online, look at the Strasbourg Cathedral. Uh, it's, it's been, I think they started building like in, I don't know, 1277 or something like that. At one point it was the largest, uh, or tallest, I should say, building in the world from 1647 to 1874 for 227 years. It was the tallest thing on the planet. I don't know who decided that, but they did. And the other last piece of this is that it's, uh, we're doing the tour there and it's this huge square. What was before Strasbourg was um, a Roman city, and there's still places where there's Roman arches still standing that are, you know, three thousand years old. So when you start putting your hand on a on a stone that's that old, I I look at how our life is here. We're just infants in so many ways, and on, I can't remember what some point on the tour the uh, the woman doing the Strasbourg. Um, uh, you know, layout there and kind of helping us walk through it. Said, if you're, if you're here, stand right here. And we all kind of walk over. She goes, this is where Hitler stood when he came here. I'm like, oh Christ, I don't, I don't want to do that. I never thought my whole lifetime I'd be in the same zip code, much less the same, you know, seven feet squared uh, that Adolf Hitler stood in. It was just like, it wasn't nothing to do with that. But it's there. And I guess the thing that reminds me or is on my mind when we were flying back, which had a long flight back, it's like nine hours back, uh, was, was, you know, there's this movement in certain places in our country to stamp out or minimize our history, you know, and Germany's doing the opposite. They're taking it by the nads and saying, this is what happened. We know this is what happened. You can deny this small fraction that it ever happened, but we, you're in the minority and we're going to own up to it and we're going to be, do better which is different than saying this never happened or only ha this is the way you should learn that it happened and stamping out 
the difficult parts of our history does not help us improve tomorrow. It was a huge reminder to me. I thought, they're just owning it. They're freaking owning it. Yeah, Hitler was here. He did horrible things. They make us go to a concentration camp before we get out of high school and can graduate. And they're reminding us that this should never happen again, that we never slide back no matter what. And over here we have, you could say anything you want. You could run up and down and slap your ass to a Congo beat wearing a Nazi flag in your head and your ass on fire. No problem. You'll get a lot of hits on YouTube. So kind of hard for my mind to wrap around that fact. And, and, and there's, a, there's a sense of peace that was there. And that comes in some respects from not watching the news very much uh, when we were over there. The only thing you can get really on board is uh, BBC, and that's a whole other experience. You know, we have BBC here you can watch in the States, but to see the world through the eyes of that outlet, not CNN, not Fox, not MSNBC, not any of the ones we tend to look at through here, once again, it's a keyhole. You know, at the, at the very time we're floating down the Rhine River and enjoying a nice dinner, you know, there's riots in France because they want to raise the minimum retirement age up two years to 64. And on one hand because I got two, and so does everybody else for the most part. On one hand, it's 24 months of work that has to be added to your workload. And on the other hand, uh, they don't like to be told what to do. Nobody does. And on the third hand, if you had one by some chance, uh, their system is going to run out of money. Not unlike here. My point being is that we're all up against it in some way, shape, or form across the board. And Travel to me is kind of the great equalizer, especially travel like this abroad when you go through other countries, meet other people, and you're the minority then. You know, we're all kind of the same here to a greater or lesser degree. I go to Germany, I, you know, I can pick up words here and there and, and kind of muddle my way through it. Most of them speak English, which was good. But it was just humbling and profound at the same time that the whole of the world does not revolve around the United States of America, meaning that everything that, he, that happens here is not the most important stuff in the world. What's happening where you live, whether it's in France or Switzerland or Germany or Netherlands, wherever you may be, that's the most important stuff. You know, we had just trickles of things coming from the United States, and here's what's going on in their backyard. And it was refreshing. There wasn't murders, bombings, arsons, and rape every five minutes like there is here. And it was good to get away from that stuff. Matter of fact, um, make sure I get this one stop in. Uh, great times across the board. As I mentioned, Strasbourg was incredible. But we were in Cologne one night. We went to a pub crawl. And there was probably 30 people, two groups of 15. And we had this um, cruise guy that came up, came up you know, with the cruise, but he was also a tour director. And so he's going to take us on this tour of, of, I think, two or three pubs. It was three pubs, I guess. And this is a six foot six, 350 pound German. It was like having King Kong as your tour guide. And Rolf was rolling his R's and he was all thick with the German pride and accent. Just a great human being. We laughed and laughed and laughed and uh, went to the first place and uh, he ordered. And, and he, there's only one beer in Germany it's Kolsch. You don't ask for a Budweiser. I could tell you the Budweiser joke, but it's really pretty nasty. So I'll stay away from that. It was a joke that Rolf had about what does. See if I can do this without being too offensive. Uh, what do what does a couple having sex in a canoe and Budweiser have in common? Uh, they're both effing near water. <laughs> so, you, to him it was a, he laughed. He thought it was the best joke he ever told. Uh, but they kept just bringing the beer, and, and until you turn your glass over or cover it, they'll just keep bringing it. And they, it was the sauerkraut was the best sauerkraut on the planet. 
my great grandpa John from Magdeburg, Germany would just love it. So uh, we get we have this great night, and we get to the third bar, and it's get kind of late. You know, we're and the beer glasses aren't these aren't big beer steins; they're small. Uh, the question comes up about gun violence. I don't know how it happened, but you're walking through Cologne. There's no cops really anywhere. It's not like it, it's just different. It's 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 a lot of people out having a good time. And he stressed that over and over again. You know, we're we're not here to hurt each other. We're here to make each other happy. It's what we do. And he launched into this whole thing about gun control. He says, my father was a police officer. When he retired, he couldn't even have a gun. The restrictions to get firearms is so strict. You have to go th- all these levels. And I think I, I looked up online. Let me see if I get this right. Um, I believe that um, uh, there's about a million people in Germany that legally own a total of more than 5 million firearms. But these 99.9% of them are sports shooters. They're hunters or foresters. So that's the bulk of where this goes uh, when it comes to firearms. Gun violence is relatively rare there. An average of 150 people are killed every year in Germany. That's a weekend in Chicago. And that conversation started and came back and forth. And he says, you know, after World War II, you guys can't have guns anymore. And nobody in the German parliament or the government changed it. They felt safer without it. They, you know, we're going to keep them out of everybody's hands and they lose 150 people a year. Uh, about 30% of those are suicides uh, to gun violence. And so it, it is hard, of course, to uh, connect with that as an American where you can walk, I can order it online. I could walk over to the store and buy it. I just get a Floyd card and off you go. And he even talked to me, he says, I, he didn't understand. He says, why do you all shoot each other so much? I, you know, that's, if I knew that, we'd have her nail. And I don't know that. And so it was a really interesting conversation back and forth about all of the strict laws and the difficulty of obtaining firearms that you have to go through all, and they'll stop and spot check you all the time. Uh, you know, so a million people in Germany own guns. I think in the United States, like 30 million of us own guns out of the 300 million. So again, it's, it's this proportional thing going on. But um, if you really want to start an argument in Germany, you don't talk about gun control. You talk about the speed on the Autobahn. It'll get everybody arguing about what's best. So it was just these reflections that, that really stuck with me. But um, as we finished up, in, almost finished up in the last pub, all of a sudden... And they have these huge jukeboxes there. Um, I, I had to start cracking up because uh, John Denver comes on singing Take Me Home Country Roads and the whole bar starts singing and you realize outside you can hear this stuff going on. And so it, they're singing like they wrote it. And I'm telling you, all of us Americans are like, what is going on here? And I don't know how it became popular in Germany. You can find this video online uh, when the NFL was in Munich last year. I think it was a year ago, and 75,000 people are singing Country Roads, nowhere near West Virginia. So it was all in all uh, so over the top in a good way that to be in another land and to uh, make a connection with people that you don't see on an ongoing basis or ever, I may never see these people again, um, instantaneously over things like music and beer and conversation and food, is the great equalizer to me. That's what travel does, uh, if you're a aware person. 
you know, we had a lot of people on our ship. We connected with some folks, you know, spent time. There's probably four or five, six couples we kind of hung around with and did certain things with and had dinner with and like that. Uh, but it was just this, this constant uh, reminder that, again, uh, my life and certainly our lives here in America is not the center of the universe. It just looks that way because of the television or social media. Uh, to be away from that stuff for almost 10 days was, was a tonic for me. It's even, even the simplicity of having to post stuff on Facebook when I got back was a chore because it all seemed so ridiculous and mundane and so unimportant to a greater or lesser degree. And underneath all of it, though, was the river, of course, right? That was our mode of transportation. It's what it's been running for, you know, thousands of years. And the levels go up and down depending on the snowfall and things like that. And you started to see real quick that, that like any place that has a mighty river in it, it's where civilization huddles. It's, it's, it's a lifeblood of the planet. And it starts way up in the North Sea and it works its way all the way down. And, and, and just to be on that waterway, knowing that the Romans were on that waterway and certainly the, the early uh, Europeans were on that waterway, and the battles that were fought on that waterway, yet the waterway continues. The river moves forward no matter what, was some kind of subliminal message for me that no matter what, you just keep going. The, the river continues no matter what's going on around it. It just, it is what it is. And and to be steady like that in the face of all the stuff that's, that's flying around was a great reminder to me. I'd be up really early, as I mentioned, and I'd sit outside drinking coffee and just watching the river roll by as we cruise on down. And I think there was maybe 11 times over that period we had to go through the locks, you know, raising and lowering the boat so we could go to the next section of the river. And the castles we went by and the, and, and the ancient feel of this place, so very, very, very different than, uh, than here in the States. And so, you know, all in all, it was just, I'd go back. I mean, getting there and coming back, that kind of sucks. I still got uh, airplane ear. I can only kind of hear it on my right ear which is not good for a guy who talks for a living. So that's hoping it clears up soon. A little bit tougher on the body when you're flying back uh, 10 hours total time and you're kind of crammed in seats. And on the way there, it was great with this huge wide body uh, with an open seat next to us. But on the way back, it was uh, was a little burly. And uh, so my feet and my hands are starting to regain their normal uh, shape and dimension and uh, starting to catch up on the jet lag a little bit. Uh, Being up at, you know, 2 a.m. yesterday, uh, not a good idea. So anyway, all in all, uh, rolling through that. Coming up in the next podcast uh, is a conversation that I'm going to be having. I'm actually giving you a serious heads up here. This is probably the most impactful thing that I'd seen on the journey, which was a tour about World War II in a small town and a, and a battle on top of a hill and Audie Murphy, who was an American hero uh, in World War II. Uh, but the tour guide, Angie, uh, I was so taken with her presentation and her knowledge and her uh, willingness to share so much of what she had learned about that area that none of us on the tour bus knew anything about. Uh, She's agreed to be my guest, but we can't tape that for a few more days. And like I said, I'll either drop that next Wednesday in the middle of the week, or I'll wait till next Saturday, depending on how it works out. Uh, But you know that the other big takeaway, of course, it's great, good to take a break. I mean, there's my takeaway is to take a break. Uh, I love what I do. I get it. You know, I'm working on book projects and I'm juggling balls in the air, but I put it on hold for 10 days. And that in itself is a, is a, is kind of a brain drain, which is a very good thing at times. Uh, you know, we, we, we were in Switzerland having breakfast on this 
glorious sunny morning. As I mentioned, this billionaire guy comes down and he's walking through the ship. And there was only a few of us. Most people had already uh, disembarked uh, off to their next uh, destination. But there was about six or eight of us waiting for our flights later. And this guy comes walking up and uh, it was just, <laughs> you know, he white-haired gentleman, stately, no bodyguards, nobody around him. He's just walking around. Hello, how are you? And I'm Torsten Hagen, and you know, I started all this. And uh, he walks up to me, and he looks at my hat. Now, I'll wear my Coast Guard hat with my uh, air crew wings. When I do things like this sometimes, just to represent. Matter of fact, I ran into a guy who was in the Coast Guard for a few years uh, on the ships. We had a good conversation. But he looks at my hat. He says, oh, Coast Guard, tough, tough guys, tough guys. I said, oh, thanks. He says, um, they've added a ship to the Mississippi River, a boat. i got to be really careful about size. It's a boat to do a Mississippi River cruise. And he said, we have to work with the Coast Guard there. And they're very tough and very fair. And okay, good. And uh, he said, they tried to get one in Chicago because he asked where I was from. I said, Chicago. He said, oh, yes, Navy Pier, beautiful, beautiful. And they tried to get a boat on the Great Lakes. And they couldn't do it to, to come into Chicago because it's too shallow. They'd have to dredge out. And he said, we're not going to pay for that. Okay, great. He says, so they go out of Milwaukee, which is a deeper harbor. And then he says, wait, wait. He says, do you know what is the best beer in Milwaukee? And I said, well, yeah, it's Schlitz. He says, oh, right answer. And he launched into a story about how in the 1960s he was here and ended up drinking his way through a bunch of cases of Schlitz. And many, many years later, uh, when they opened the dock for one of their ships on the Great Lakes in Milwaukee, apparently the mayor found out or something and sent him another case of Schlitz. So it was all about the Schlitz beer. Uh, But to, to talk with this guy... To see a man who's put his money where his mouth is for decades, they I don't know how many cruises they have around the world, 50 maybe, 50 ships, I think. Um, again, shameless plug. If you get the chance, do it. Get out of the States for a little bit. See the world a little bit differently. And uh, just realize at some point that the you know it doesn't revolve all around us. So I'm going to close this up today with this version of Country Roads. that, uh, And this is a, a, a group called Hermes House Band, which is a Dutch act, recorded the song and their version shot to the top of the German charts in, back in 2001. And this thing has become a staple of Oktoberfest celebrations for decades. And once again, who knows how this stuff happens? Music, of course, the universal language. I did find an article online that Bill Danoff, who along with his wife at the time, Taffy Nivert and John Denver, wrote the song. Uh, Bill Danoff had never been to West Virginia when he wrote the song, much less to Germany. He's never been to Germany. And, you know, it's one of those things, how does a song do that and pick up so much steam that 75,000 people are singing it in Munich and on a Tuesday night in Cologne, the bar erupts uh, with Take Me Home Country Roads. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, stick around next week. Uh, this was kind of the lighter end of the deal. My observations on the on the uh, cruise and how much fun we had and the, the, you know, the viability of it and kind of urging you to take a break if you get a chance to do it. But next week, when I have Angie, we're going to dig a little deeper into some pretty hard subjects. And uh, I think it's something that needs to be talked about uh, so the boys aren't forgotten because we tend to do that here. Anyway, until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Adios.
driving down the road I get the feeling that I should have been home yesterday Yesterday